0: Welcome to Ask Pastor Steve. Today we have four questions, I'm going to try and cover four questions from listeners. The first one is from Dawn H. Hi Dawn, she's a part of our church, Cornerstone Community Church. And Dawn asks, what was a drink offering in the Old Testament and what was Paul trying to convey when he said he would be poured out as a drink offering in light of that Old Testament practice? Great question Dawn, thank you for that. So. It, there, there was this thing called a drink offering. So, you know, you could bring an animal and offer it. Little animals, a pigeon, bigger animals, uh, you know, a goat or something. You could bring animals and offer them up on the altar. That's more costly. A big animal is worth a lot more money than a glass of wine. So, you could also bring a lesser offering. Didn't cost you as much because you're not as wealthy this year. So, you bring a drink offering, a glass of wine. And here's the sacrifice you're making with that wine you don't get to drink it, it's poured out in the ground around the altar. That's a drink offering. That's what he did. So, Paul picks that up and makes it a metaphor for his life and says to the Philippians Look, if my life is just being poured out, for you, if I'm gonna die for you, he's in a a Roman prison, he might die. If I'm gonna die, but it ministers to you, it helps people, it builds up the church, then I'm thankful for that. So that's what it is, that's what Paul meant when he said, he would be willing to be poured out as a drink offering. Or he actually said, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, that's fine with me, paraphrase. So thank you for asking about that one, Don. And oh, may we all imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We're willing to be poured out, like Paul, as drink offerings on the sacrifice and service of other people's faith. Next question comes from Emmeline. Hi, Emmeline. also at Cornerstone Church. And she asks what is the SHV SHV version referenced in your sermon on Sunday? She says, I looked it up and I found the School of Hebrew Bible translation, or is it your own paraphrase? Just curious exclamation point. Thank you for that question. Fair question. So I have to tell you the story. It's my own translation out of the Greek, because I wasn't entirely happy with any of the ones I looked at. I thought, I just want to go with a literal wooden translation here from the Greek. It'll explain the thing better. And so I put that SHV at the end. And I meant to say something about it in each service. I forgot to in the first service. One of the guys back at the soundboard asked me, what's that SHV? And I said, oh, I meant to talk about that. I'll make sure I do it in the second service. Second service, totally forgot to do it. And so fair question, it is the Steve Hartland version, which is no version at all, but it was for that verse one day. Thank you, Evelyn. Next question comes from Paul S., also a Cornerstone guy. Hello, Paul. Great question. Thank you for it. Paul asks, if you believe God created everything, and I do, and we do, and I know you do too, did he also create Satan? Great question. The answer is kind of wiggly. The answer is, well, no and yes, in that order. So here's where I want to start. So, he created angels, and Satan was originally an angel. So he created an angel that later became Satan. He didn't create him as Satan. He created him as a holy angel. And the angels were created, incidentally, uh, prior to creation. We know that from the book of Job, Job 38, 4 through 7, which reads, God's speaking to us to humble us, speaking to Job to humble him. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Listen to this part. While the morning stars, that's a metaphor for angels. While the morning stars sang together. By the way, Jason Wallace, that is the first angel song in the bible but i didn't answer yes because we're not told what they sang and you were talking about the first song that we see the words to so anyway but this is the first angel song while while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy so the angels were there when god is creating and they're going yay amazing amen hallelujah glory to god and all that they were all holy angels who were worshiping at that point. Had Satan and his group fallen yet, yeah, we don't know. They may have. We don't know exactly when the fall happened. It probably happened prior to creation. It certainly happened before the the thing we get in the Garden of Eden with his temptation. But somewhere along the line, the devil became the devil. You can read about that. You can read about his fall in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. The two passages overlap, talk about the same thing. So the answer is, Paul, God made him holy, but he rebelled and became the devil, Satan, the enemy of our souls. Great question, thank you. I have one more question today, and this is from Nina. Also right here at Cornerstone Community Church, she's been in a women's Bible study here, and they've been studying the book of Habakkuk. They've been in Habakkuk chapter 2, and something made Nina think, wait a minute, I don't know what this is about. Let me ask Pastor Steve. So there are people who are described as righteous in chapter 2. And then a little bit later, there are people— these are actually other people now. You're thinking they're the same. They're not. There are other people in, in the chapter who are going to be mocking their captors, taunting them, scoffing them, talking about them in riddles. And your question is, how— should righteous people be doing that how come righteous people are mocking how come right aren't we supposed to be you know more more gentle than that maybe let me read you the part verse 6 should not all these the conquered people god says take up their taunt against him the conqueror with scoffing and riddles for him and should they not all say woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long, and loads himself with pledges, Habakkuk 2.6. So the answer is, these are not the righteous people described in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. These are the conquered peoples of all nations, it says in the text. People from all over the place who get conquered by the Chaldeans are going to be taunting and uh, scoffing and so on. By the way, this happens other times in the Bible. just happened to be in my morning Bible reading this morning in Jeremiah chapter 49, and in verse 13 we read, Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse. People will curse Basra. People will taunt. Basra, and so on. Again, in verse 15 in in Jeremiah 49, I will make you despised among mankind. People will despise them. Verse 17, Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. So there are other places in the Bible, just like the one here in Habakkuk chapter two, when a conquered people aren't real happy with their conquerors, and they mock them, they taunt them, they're especially taunting them because they're basically saying, your time's coming, as my gr- British grandmother would have said, you're gonna get your comeuppance, what goes around comes around, and it's gonna come back to you. So, no, Nina, I don't believe it. this is the righteous people. Actually, verse four, when it says, But the righteous shall live by his faith. That's a great verse. Martin Luther was converted in part, in large part, by that verse, by his understanding of it. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, Colossians 3.1, Romans 1.17, no, Galatians 3.1, Romans 1.17, and Hebrews 10.38. But what's going on in the chapter is, let me back up and give you more of the book. So Habakkuk is complaining to God, chapter 1. How come you're going to allow people who are worse than us to come and conquer us? You're judging us because of our sins. They're bigger sinners than we are. How come you're allowing those Chaldeans to come and to conquer us? That's in chapter 1. Let me read you a part. Why do you look idly, God, at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How come you're going to let those people judge us? We're we're Israel. We're your people. And then in chapter 2, the Lord answers and basically says, look, it is coming. If it seems slow, wait for it. Verse 3 And uh, then he says, but the righteous person shall live by faith. There weren't many righteous people in Israel. That's why they're about to be judged. There weren't any righteous people among the Chaldeans. That's why they're also going to be judged. He's not describing here the righteous are not the people doing the taunting later on. The people doing the taunting are, verse 5, the nations he gathered for himself and collected as his own from all peoples. So the Chaldeans are going to gather in all these poor people that they've conquered, and then we'll come back to verse 6. Shall not all these, the conquered peoples, not the righteous in Israel, shall not all these take up their taunt against them with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him, and so on. So hope I explained the flow of thought a little bit there. But I want to answer a question you weren't really asking, but maybe you're sort of hinting at, and that is, is it ever right then? Is it ever right? This is the larger question. Is it ever right for a believer a follower of Jesus Christ to taunt or to mock or to scoff at something. And the answer I'm gonna give you, Nina and everybody else, is not the one you're expecting to hear maybe, but I think it's absolutely right. Let me say it this way. If taunting is your normal modus operandi, like if you pronounce woes on the mailman when he's late, if you pronounce woes on the barista when they didn't get your coffee right, if you pronounce woes on your husband when he didn't pick up his socks, um, that's not good. You're in a bad place. This should be a very rare thing. But can there be occasions when a Christian would use stronger language and taunt or scoff or mock? Yes, there are times. Let me give you some examples from God's Word. In First Corinthians, I'm sorry, in First Kings 18, Elijah taunts and mocks the prophets of Baal. Now Elijah was a righteous and godly man. One of the most godly man of the whole Old Testament. And he's mocking the prophets of Baal, and he says, hey, maybe your God's musing, or maybe he's relieving himself, going potty, or maybe he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep. He's making fun of the prophets and their God. That is righteous. Now, not if he did that every day to the mailman and the priest and everybody else, but there are occasions where things are so bad, they call for very strong expressions from the people of God. In Matthew chapter 23, our Lord Jesus Christ pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees, very much like the ones, there are five woes in Habakkuk chapter 2. Woe to him who heaps up. Woe to him who gets evil. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, and so on and so forth. The Lord Jesus picks that up, and in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now listen to what he says. And he doesn't say, and this is what Christians in our day would want him to say. He doesn't say You scribes and Pharisees, I'm sure you're nice people. And I really, I appreciate you and I love you. And I'm sure you're wonderful people and you have many good redeeming qualities that I could learn from. I'm sure there are things you're better at than me. Now, he doesn't do that, the current evangelical soft thing. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, blind men, you blind fools, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." That's loving Jesus. Now, he didn't do that with everybody every day, but there were extreme occasions that called forth, that, that called, righteously called forth that kind of strong speech. Read the book of Jude. He's also pronouncing woes. And read the way he describes the bad people. Listen to Paul in Acts chapter 13. I happened to read through this the other day and notice this verse. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, and he didn't say, I'm sure you're a nice guy, et cetera. He said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, Acts 13. There are times when a Christian ought to speak like Paul, like the Lord Jesus, like Habakkuk's taunters even. Just if you want some, um, an example of this from church history, read Martin Luther the ways he made fun of the Pope. I looked at some of them this morning. I looked them up and thought, no, I can't even read that. I'm not even going to go there, but he published that kind of stuff. You see, our problem in our day is that we are completely fixated on what one Votie Bakum calls the 11th commandment. What is the 11th commandment? Thou shalt be nice. We're fixated on nice. And maybe people with very agreeable personalities, very agreeable temperaments, who just traffic in being nice. It's the big thing about them. Don't realize there are times when you need to be not so nice in in the interest of the kingdom, and you need to be strong. So, Nina, I hope that helps. That's what's going on in Habakkuk 2. But then you asked a second question, and that is, you noted that in the Old Testament, sometimes God's people, Israel— The Hebrews are God's agents agents of just retribution. They carry the sword. They bring God's wrath. And then you ask, when does this precedent of God using his people to execute his judgment stop? Or did it stop at all? Well, yeah, it absolutely has stopped. Great question. So here's what you need to know. In the Old Testament, we have a theocracy. It was the church and the government completely wed. The church was the government. The government was the church. The people of God were that. And so the government had power for the sword. So the church had power of the sword. Romans 13. That ended, for sure, at Calvary. That ended at the cross. That ended on the day of Pentecost. That ends in the church. We are not a theocracy. In our case, the government, and only the government, has the power of the sword, and any private citizens to whom they grant it, concealed carry permit. But also, uh, the church does not have the power of the sword. We have the power of the sword of the Spirit. We can cut deeply with that and bring about regeneration by our ministry of that. So the church does not use the power of the sword, the real sword, as agents of wrath over the nations in our day. That all stopped at the cross. Great question, Nina. Great questions all. Really enjoyed it. Send us some more people. Thanks for being here today.